children are capable of learning many different sounds and many different languages. In fact, the earlier you teach them, the better, because when children are under nine months of age, they can pick up on different sounds that our old adult ears would never be able to pick up on. And so they're hearing sounds from different languages and they're picking up on those perceptions. So for example, a tonal language like Mandarin, I can't hear the difference between some of the different tones. If you exposed a baby to it, they would know they would be able to then produce those sounds when they're older. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast. Brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman, also known as the PD Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you're comfortable, well-rested, and ready to be inspired. Who am I kidding? You're a parent. Hopefully, you're just here. Today, our guest is none other than Jocelyn Wood. Jocelyn is a bilingual speech-language pathologist who has been providing in-person therapy as well as parent caregiver coaching for over a decade now. She specializes in working with parents who are looking for advice on how to introduce speech and language activities into their everyday routines. Using her child-led approach, Jocelyn is able to get kids talking and keep them ahead of the curve. And who wouldn't want that? Her work has been featured in The Bump, Romper, First Time Parent Magazine. One of the things that we commonly mention are that there are a lot of people, especially online, who might refer to themselves as experts in a certain field without the credentials to actually back up that expertise. And this can be dangerous, especially for parents who are flooded with information. It also is extremely frustrating for us as pediatricians. And we're here to tell you that having followed Jocelyn and her work for some time now, Her advice is trustworthy, backed up not only by her credentials and vast experience, but also by evidence. And we entirely support her message. She's not online claiming that you can fix thumb sucking in a day. She's not perpetuating inaccuracy about speech delays or promising miracles, but she's promoting science, honesty, and she's doing it with a smile on her face and with the support of the parenting community. And um, this goes a very long way for us. So if you have kids, this account is one you should follow. If your children are under the age of seven, this is a discussion you should listen to. And if you're just curious about introducing another language into your home, you're in the right spot. So without further delay, welcome, Jocelyn. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course, we're so happy to have you. And um, we told, I totally agree with everything Sammy said. Um, we just have loved following you. And this is kind of our bread and butter, you know, development and speech is something we talk about on a daily basis, especially those first two to three years of life. Um, and so we're just so excited that we can pick your brain about all of this stuff. So thank you again for being here. But before we kind of flood you with all of our questions, um, we would love it if you can tell us a little bit about your journey and exactly what a speech pathologist is and what you do. Those are all really great questions. Um, Thank you again for having me. It's always great to be working on a team with pediatricians who are so involved with children's development. 
So um, becoming a speech pathologist was not something that I initially set out to do. I started out at Boston University studying linguistics, and I was getting a master's degree in linguistics. I was slated to design computer programs to study language development. And through the course of doing that, I realized I don't really like sitting in front of the computer all day. Ironically, that's what I've been doing for the last year. But I do really like working in person with children. So I went out to collect some data and I decided right then and there that I was going to switch into the field of speech language pathology. I did not realize the rigorous amount of education that came along with that. And um, after three years of studying, I began working in a NICU. I worked with medically fragile children and I was there for about a year until I transitioned to working in an elementary school. I continue at the elementary school. I've been there for, this is my 13th year. And I also started my private practice, which focuses mainly on infants and toddlers. I use some of my background of working with medically fragile children. I still do service that population. And I also work with families just to find new and interesting ways that they can really engage with their children without adding extra time to their day. Well, that's wonderful. And so for our audience, you know, some might be very familiar with what a speech therapist or pathologist does and some might not. So could you maybe walk them through what exactly a typical one would be doing? Sure. So speech language pathologists generally start off by having conversations with parents. And I know a big concern that lots of parents have is what if my child doesn't speak to you when you come to meet them? And I think that that's totally valid, which is why parent interview and discussing with parents what's going on with their child is always the first step to the journey. Um, So we do lots of talking, obviously. Um, We talk to parents. We also talk to children. I am a child-centered play-based therapist, which means that What I am doing looks like play to the naked eye, but what I'm really doing is I'm checking in on a child's receptive language, what they're able to understand, their expressive language, what they're able to say, their articulation, which is how they form different words. Um, I'm also looking at their social skills, how they relate to other people, how they play with their toys. And I even do look at feeding and swallowing to see what's going on there. We talk about thumb sucking, pacifiers, if little babies have tongue ties. Um, So it does cover a broad range. Again, I'm a pediatric speech pathologist. We are trained to work through the lifespan, but I really focus on the under five population. Wow. That's, um, there's so much we could talk about. That's just really great. And we heavily rely on our speech pathologists as well. When we notice that children maybe aren't meeting their milestones or we need some extra support in particular areas. So we really do rely on you guys. Um, if you guys, I think maybe we should start from the beginning, uh, when it comes to some of the, uh, tongue ties and the, um, uh, the, the pacifier use. Um, if you had any tips on what parents should look out for regarding um, those two particular topics in the newborn period and when they should um, seek your help and advice. Um, That would be really helpful just to start from the beginning. 
Yeah, we're starting from like the most controversial topics because (laughs) (laughs) we're just going to dive right in. (laughs) All right. So yeah, I have lots of opinions. I also have lots of facts about this. So um, tongue ties and lip ties, lots of people are saying this is like a new fad to go out and cut them. But um, it's actually in literature from medieval times that when midwives would deliver babies, they would swipe underneath the tongue to check for a tongue tie. And that's what they would use to cut ties. So this is not something that's new. This is something that has been going on for a really long time. And I think one of the reasons why it's back in fashion these days is because parents are opting to breastfeed their children. And it is very difficult to breastfeed a child if there is a tongue or a lip tie. Now, what are these things? They are restrictions that happen. They're little pieces of tissue that will connect the lip in between the teeth or the tongue to the bottom of your mouth. So it makes the range of motion much less. So some things that parents might notice from a baby who has a tongue or a lip tie is that they might be very colicky. So they might be very gassy after their feeding. They might have a hard time latching Um, Some babies do experience reflux after feeding due to tongue ties because they're taking in a lot of air while they're feeding. Um, In terms of things that could happen to the mother, there could be some blistering or sores around the nipple that they could be having or any pain that they could be having during the latch and feedings are going to take a much longer period of time. Um, I do find that these are missed very often and parents will try to just treat one of those causes rather than looking a little bit deeper. And it's super important when dealing with tongue and lip ties to work with somebody who's specifically trained in those areas because not every pediatrician knows what they're looking for when it comes to tongue and lip tie. Not every speech pathologist knows what they're looking for. Um, not every dentist knows. So there are very specific and specialized people who deal with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it, it does as a pediatrician feel, I like how you said that it's like more in fashion these days. Um, and you know, we could definitely talk literature and I'm happy to talk about, you know, facts and whatnot, but I can also say that it, you know, there's definite obvious benefit even sitting from our, where we stand or, you know, as a pediatrician, um, certain babies, if they've been diagnosed with a, if a lip tie or a tongue tie, when they come back, the parental report is, is great, but it's not, all the time. And so I, I do see it being slightly overdiagnosed. And I also do see that a lot of parents hang their hopes like really high on it and then expect a miracle. And then when the miracle doesn't happen and the babies are still gassy, still colicky, still whatever, we are left to pick up the pieces. <laughs> so there is a little bit of that as well. But um but I do agree, you know, it does take a trained eye to recognize it. I mean, the ones that don't like, you know, bite you in the armpit, they don't have like a tongue that's shaped like a heart or something. Some of them are slightly more subtle and whatnot. But can you touch on the fact of, you know, we talked about feeding difficulties, do undiagnosed lip and tongue ties delay speech in any way? So we can again talk about the very mixed literature on that. So what the literature explicitly says is that untreated tongue and lip ties do not cause any impact to articulation development or speech and language development. What I've seen clinically is that children with undiagnosed 
tongue ties will have difficulty with certain speech sounds just because the tongue is tethered to the bottom of the mouth. It's not able to lift up and make certain speech sounds that we need to lift our tongue for, like a T, a D, an L. Those are all sounds that are going to require that our tongue goes to the top. A child can figure out how to produce those sounds, but they're probably going to learn some compensatory strategy um, to do that. And it might not look correct, it might not sound correct as they become more mature and you want their speech to be a little bit more crisp. Um, those are some of the things I'm, I've seen. In terms of language development or when a child begins speaking, I haven't necessarily seen any impact to the time when children start speaking. Children with tongue and lip ties do learn to speak at the same time as their peers, if that's the only thing going on. Yeah, I think that's something that's pretty much what we've noticed as well. And so, um, like you both mentioned, setting those expectations early on, I think is the most important. Um, and, you know, and using it as a case by case, you know, I often say, if the, um, the tongue tie is preventing the child from growing and feeding, you know, and then have them being evaluated by a professional to see if that procedure will help with that. But yeah, definitely, it's not always a magic fix, you know, and setting those expectations is really important. But thank you for clarifying that because that is a question that we get often. Um, so I'm glad we we all agree on that one. But um, to kind of move on to the some of the other speech stuff, another common question that we get uh, from parents are parents from multilingual homes. So um, uh, children that uh, grow up with many languages or two languages. And, um, you know, a lot of times they ask us if that will cause any speech delays or language delays. So I don't uh, just think wanted they to ask get... us. <laughs> I, think, I think they assume every time. Yeah. Don't you think, yeah. I think it's like they definitely. oh no, they're not talking because we have yes. language exposure. <laughs> like, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a common uh, I, I get asked too, you know, and but a lot of them will be like, oh, you know, they've they only say a few words, but I think they get confused at home because we speak multiple languages. But yeah, if you could clarify on that, that would be awesome. It's funny because parents will do the exact same thing to me. Like, I'm calling you, but the real reason is that we just speak two languages at home. Um, so speaking two languages is a gift. It's not something to hold you back. Speaking multiple languages is more of a gift. And I, I live in Brooklyn, so we're a real multicultural society here. And I know that many parents become concerned when they are introducing another language because they do want to expose their child to this other language and to their home culture, but they're fearful that exposing their child to another language is going to hinder their development and it's going to slow them down. Um, so here's the real truth behind it. Children are capable of learning many different sounds and many different languages. In fact, the earlier you teach them, the better, because when children are under nine months of age, they can pick up on different sounds that our old adult ears would never be able to pick up on. And so they're hearing sounds from different languages and they're picking up on those perceptions. So for example, a tonal language like Mandarin, I can't hear the difference between some of the different tones. If you exposed a baby to it, they would know they would be able to then produce those sounds when they're older. 
Um, so that's the advantage of that early exposure. But if we think about all of the things that a child needs to do to learn one language and then to learn two languages, it's going to take a little bit longer to learn that a cup is a cup, but it's also a vaso and it's a cup with one person, but it's a vaso with this other person. And I need to figure out that this one object has two different words and I use these words with two completely different people. And that whole experience of learning does take a little bit longer. And so if you're looking at typical milestones for children and you want your child to have 15 words by 18 months and you're noticing that they don't have any words at that point, it could be because they are trying to figure out that these two words belong to the same object. So I do see bilingual children will receptively understand what's happening. They will be able to hear directions and understand what different things are in different languages, but those words might take a little bit longer. So I love that. And um, I think that's wonderful. And I'd like to present a few different scenarios if you could, because like what what happens if the family, like if mom and dad speak an extra language and, da, 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 and so maybe just kind of give your thoughts on what we would recommend. Um, so let's say, for example, both mom and dad are Spanish speaking, or let's just say both mom and dad are bilingual. So they speak both Spanish and English. What I always tell them is English is a given. <laughs> like you're growing up in America, okay. you will you will learn English. So I always actually encourage them just to speak Spanish only at home because the English will come. But what would do? You, what would you say if they yeah, want? Yeah, and to- I'm. I am on the same page as you, you know, English is the dominant social language. And so children hear English all around them. They hear it on television, on the radio, in the stores, they're hearing English, they're seeing it used socially, Um, they're watching people's mouths move, they're not getting that much exposure to Spanish, even if mom and dad both speak Spanish, the dominant social language of the United States is English. So um, I would tell them to speak Spanish at home and English around if they wanted to expose their child to English. Uh, Another really great piece of advice that I give families is to do situation-based. And so it could be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, bath time is in Spanish. And Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, bath time is in English. So they're getting exposure to those key vocabulary words in both languages. Great. So would you say um, that like if they do have the two languages that they should try to do the one that like maybe is a little bit more difficult, the parents should try to speak in that one more? Or is it okay for the parents to say cup and I don't remember what word you used, but (laughs) the other word for it, um, is it okay for them to do both words? Uh, or does, is that becoming confusing to the child if mom and dad are using two words for one object? I think what becomes confusing is when we're drilling a child. So we're like, this is a cup. What else would you call this? Because children's brains don't work in that way. Children will become confused if you're constantly switching within one conversation. But if they're hearing one parent, one language, or one day, one language, one day, the other language, there's enough separation between it that they are able to 
distinguish between each language and start parsing it out on their own because that's a really important part of bilingual language development to be able to make those social connections and know which person and which situation the language belongs to. Okay, so what if one parent speaks, say, Mandarin, and then the other one is predominantly English-speaking, and then they also have to speak to each other? So let's just say they speak to each other in English. What would you recommend that that family does in order to raise a bilingual child? So that's another super common situation. Um, We definitely see that one all the time. I would give similar advice that the parent who speaks Mandarin should continue speaking Mandarin to their child. And because it's going to be an unbalanced exposure to languages, to try to find some other modalities to expose your child to that other language. I'm not talking sitting your child in front of an app with flashcards, but, you know, listening to songs that are in that language, finding a play group where that language is going to be happening, having conversations with family members who also speak that language are all going to be super important ways for you to ensure that your child can develop simultaneously in both languages. And then, great. Thank you so much. This is so validating. But I know that this is the type of question that families really want to know about. And then you have like the average family that's unilingual, but would love to have their child know a language they don't know. What could they do? Yeah. And I love when families are trying to promote another language at home. I definitely think that with that type of exposure, you want to be really careful with your pronunciation because your child is able to pick up on correct pronunciation and you really want to take advantage of that. So if neither parent has real clear enunciation, finding recordings of that voice or finding also people in the community who speak that language to help out and pitch in. People love teaching their home language. And so really taking advantage of that community aspect. And, you know, if you have a nanny that speaks another language to involve that person, that caregiver in exposing their your child to their culture, um, books in that language and listening to different songs. I think music is really motivating for children to learn language everywhere. And we have such a gift. We have the internet where you can find songs in any language. And I think, you know, finding those songs and that music is a strong connection to the culture. And it's a great way for children to naturally hear how language is used, hear the correct pronunciation and really start to learn. Yeah, I love that so much. I think like what you said about music is so true. My family is uh, Indian American and immigrated here when I was younger. Um, And many of my family and friends, you know, they can sing perfectly in that language. You know, they might not be able to converse as fluently, but I think music and entertainment is really a powerful tool. Um, But so just to kind of summarize, I, I really found that really helpful. But just to summarize, there's in your opinion, no disadvantage to learning as many languages as possible. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I totally, um, uh, totally agree. I think there's uh, a lot of families have that concern, but I'm glad you were able to put that to rest because I think it only adds to their experience, right? Yeah. And there is one more potential scenario and you kind of touched on it when you said the nanny thing, but it's usually like if there's a grandparent that speaks an extra language and mom and dad don't necessarily, 
And typically those grandparents are immigrants, like how Anna was just saying. So maybe they would be speaking in that other language to the grandkids, but the grandkids end up potentially understanding the language, but not being fluent in it. And what mm-hmm. I've always encouraged, and this is, I, I will totally admit, I haven't read about this. It's just a personal experience is uh, when they get to a certain point is actually kind of forcing the kids to speak. Um, that's what my parents did with me. They would literally say, I don't understand you uh, in Farsi, even though they very well understood what I was saying in English. But by making me have to express myself in, in, in Farsi, I became fluent despite never having lived there. What are your thoughts on that? It's a little bit aggressive and immigrant mommy-ish, but what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I like that approach. This is something that actually comes up a lot in the school where I work. The population of the school is mostly Mexican immigrant families, and the children will grow up hearing Spanish at home, but then they come to school where we speak English all the time. And by the time they're about seven or eight, they understand Spanish, but can no longer speak it because they're not using it at home. Um, And we encourage parents to use a lot of storytelling with their children to have children telling stories in Spanish because it is taking a little bit of the demand off of the constant back and forth of conversation. When children have conversation, you want them to feel comfortable and you want them to be able to be heard. And so having them speak in the language that's most familiar to them is very important. But storytelling can be, again, feeding into that culture and going back with stories and traditions that your heritage has and having children practice their Spanish in that way is also another great gift. So kind of rewinding a little bit, that, I think that was very nicely summed up with, with the language exposure. And I think our audience will definitely really benefit from that. But what do you see in terms of speech delay from your position And what are some red flags that parents could watch out for? And what do you recommend families do if if that's something that they're thinking about? Yeah, so I would say in general, parents become concerned about speech and language development as early as 12 months, but really around like 15, 18 months when they start noticing that their child is not making sounds or that they haven't said their first words yet. That's really the first time that parents will reach out to a speech language pathologist and really start to wonder, huh, what's going on? Is this normal? What should be happening? I think, especially with the internet, it can be really confusing to do a Google search of child not speaking at 12 months and you get a whole laundry list of reasons of what could be happening. Um, But that's really the first time that families will touch base with me and we would either refer to early intervention, which is a free service that's offered by communities in the United States, or we would decide on parent coaching or an evaluation that would help the parents to bolster their child language. The other big time that I start to hear from parents is around two years of age. And at that point, if a child only has five words or 10 words and they haven't started combining words, parents will become concerned again and reach out to the speech language pathologist. And that's a real important juncture for speech and language development because If by at that point your child is not using communication functionally to ask for what they need or to talk to you about what they're doing, 
they are going to need the support of a speech language pathologist to kind of get caught up and learn what they need to do. We always think of communication functionally. So what is your child using it for and how are they communicating? Because if a child is pulling on you and dragging you towards something that is communication, that is the foundation of communication. So we need to kind of put the puzzle pieces together and figure out why aren't they making the words to accompany that. They know what they want, but they're not expressing to you clearly that they want that. Um, So we figure out where the breakdown occurs and kind of go from there. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. I think this is a great point to mention that if you, if uh, you know, our listeners or um, families notice some of these speech delays and they bring it up to their pediatrician, usually what we'll recommend is a hearing test um, first. And so a lot of speech pathologists will uh, require that or speech therapists will require that before starting speech therapy because that is one of the most common things that we see on the pediatric side is um, a slight hearing delay or hearing abnormality that can then cause the speech delays. But in your opinion, um, what are other comments of speech, common causes of speech delay that you notice uh, in your population that you treat? Yeah, so I love that you're referring families for hearing evaluations. Lots of parents think ear infections only happen if your child is tugging at their ear or that they're in pain, but you could have fluid in your ear that makes everything around you sound like you are underwater, which is really not advantageous for learning language. Um, So some other things that I see commonly are, you know, different personalities of kids, I think can have a huge impact. So kids who are a little bit shyer are going to be much more cautious to start using words. um, And they might say a lot of different sounds or animal sounds because there's a lot less stress associated with that. There's also kids who are super energetic and they're spending so much of their energy running around, bouncing around that it's difficult for them to sit still to really focus on what they need to for language development. Sometimes that is also a sensory processing disorder that they're having difficulty balancing where their body is in space. And that can also affect movement patterns that we have in our mouth that we would need to create speech and language. You know what I loved about what you said? Um, I think what I loved is that you mentioned that how they are communicating is really important because obviously the elephant in the room right now is autism, right? Uh, most of us think about autism and parents are worried about their kids being autistic, especially if they're watching their speech closely and they're worried that they're not developing at an appropriate rate. And the main thing I think that sets a child with autism aside from a child that doesn't have it is effective communication. So repeating is not necessarily effective communication or being able to rhyme colors or rhyme numbers um, is not necessarily effective communication, right? By the eight, by the right. time that they're two years old, it's that are they using it in the right context and are they asking for what they want to a certain degree? And if they're doing that, then they don't necessarily have a speech delay. But if they have some words that they say consistently or they have interests in things like numbers or, or you know, even learning things, for example, like planets, but that's all that they're interested in and they're not interested in communicating with you or making eye contact with you or 
you know, bringing you into their world. And a word, word I often hear is stubborn. Uh, that's what how the parents will describe them. That's a huge red flag for a pediatrician about potentially evaluating if that child has is on the spectrum. Yeah, and it's super important to notice the communication styles are so completely different because a child who is a typical communicator who is just experiencing a language delay is still going to make eye contact with you. And you are going to know that they're trying to get your attention because they are going to look you straight in the eye and throw their water to the ground. Or they're going to look you straight in the eye, moan to you, and pull you to the refrigerator. Um, Whereas, as you said, a child on the spectrum may have a lot of interesting language skills. They might know every single color. They might know the names of every train from Thomas. But are they able to tell you that they want a glass of water? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's so important and crucial. And I think that confuses families sometimes because a lot of people think that autism means zero words and that's not necessarily the case. And I'm I'm, sorry, go ahead, Anna. Sorry. No, I was just going to plug in there because I love what you guys said there. And also there's sometimes gray areas, right? Um, When we're talking about a spectrum, there's kids that might be higher functioning, right? And then there's kids that are more severe. And so the biggest thing I feel like that I try to stress to my parents that if we're noticing these difficulties in communication, or if they're getting frustrated, or if we're not, you know, getting to um, where we expect them to be in a certain point, it never hurts to have, uh, you know, an evaluation to have therapy started early, because I think that might be the difference, you know, in helping the child. Um, develop those communication skills, you know, if they have more milder, um, you know, milder autism, or they are higher functioning, and it can get confusing sometimes. So it's really important to, I think, talk to your pediatrician and not be afraid to um, get get evaluated. Yeah, I do think, yeah. yeah, and just to add on to that, I think there is a lot of fear around an evaluation. I was having a chat with a parent recently and she told me that she was so fearful to do the full evaluation because she thought that everybody was going to be judging her as a parent. And it's not about judging you. You are doing a great job parenting. This is about finding the strategies that are effective to help your child learn. And every child does learn a little bit differently. So sometimes it's just taking that first step to learn a little bit more about how to help them. And the earlier that you do it, the better that the outcomes are going to be. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I cannot stress that enough. So let's just repeat it one more time. Do not delay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you have a very small window of opportunity to make a huge difference in your child's life. And by waiting and seeing, you could potentially really miss the train. So uh, early intervention is key. To me, it's all brain stimulation. Let's just say for a moment that all three of us were wrong and there is a child that never had a speech delay and we put him through the rigors of speech therapy with Jocelyn. All you did was just stimulate his brain and, you know, get him even more ready for kindergarten, essentially. So there's no harm in it whatsoever. There's no downside. There's no labeling. There's nothing that follows them for the rest of their life. It's only positive. 
Yeah. And also these children with autism, a lot of times they will develop more anxiety, um, you know, more mental health uh, uh, symptoms or later on in life. And so you're giving them the tools to begin with. And so, yeah, definitely no disadvantage in early intervention. Sorry, we'll get off of our soapbox now. <laughs> but I do have, I have a question since we started off so controversial. I want your thoughts on this. Um, this is totally opinion only, right? Because we don't have any data yet for any of this. But do you guys feel like we've seen more autistic kids since the pandemic? I'm seeing like some really interesting stuff. And like there is some preliminary research about mask wearing and how children are affected by mask wearing, because I know that that is a hot topic. That's thing that parents are asking for. A lot of people became parents during the pandemic. A lot of babies are only just meeting their relatives now. And I know that parents have been really concerned about the impact that mask wearing and being in a lockdown will have on their child's social development. And my own perspective is that children are much more resilient than we are as adults. I think that we're pinning a lot of our own insecurities on them. I think it was very traumatic for adults. I think for children, they're just going to go back to life as usual. Um, it's critical for them to see mouth movement. So if children are in a daycare setting or with a daycare provider where masks are the thing, clear masks are essential so that children can see how mouths are moving, how people are talking and get those social cues. Um, but they're also exposed to their parents without masks and they are able to pick up on those cues at home also. So my opinion is I think they're all, the kids are all right. They're going to be fine. What do you think, Anna? What has your thought been? Yeah, I honestly think that, uh, especially for the younger children, this is what they know. Um, and in my experience, uh, as I see the the children at two months, four months, six months, you know, nine months, 12 months, um, I feel like they're not really affected that much by the masks. You know, I feel like they still pick up on the communication, they still smile and laugh, you know, so I don't think it's impacting their developmental milestones personally. The only thing that I that I have pause about is the added screen time because um, kids are at home and, and parents are stressed and naturally we're all having more screen time. And I feel like that's the one thing that I try to stress at all parents that, you know, try to get out, try to do other activities with them, try to stimulate their mind in other ways, because a little bit of screen time and um, FaceTime and Zoom time with family is okay, but um, you know, we go on and on and talking about that, but that's just the one thing that I have pause about. But other than that, I feel like kids are going to do just fine overall. I don't know if Sammy agrees. I, I do. I do. Essentially, I do. I think so. We don't know what causes autism, right? We've been researching it to death so far, and it is quite the conundrum of a, of a thing. And at the end of the day, I think it's going to be very clear if it isn't already that it's a it's a two part thing. So you you have the genetic tendency, and then something turns it on. Just sim similar to diabetes, for example, we call it like the two hit hypothesis. So you 
have the gene and then something in your environment, whether it's like a virus or sometimes we don't even know what it is, turns on that gene and then you become diabetic. So that's why, for example, you can have twins that have the exact same DNA makeup. One will get diabetes and one won't. And half the time we don't even know what that trigger was that made one identical twin get diabetes. And autism is, I think, is going to end up being the same way where you either have the gene or you don't. So for me, the pandemic's fascinating because, you know, my face you can only see when I'm doing a physical exam, like only my eyeballs really, cause I'm so covered. And I have four month old who clearly does not have a genetic autistic trait, knows I'm a human and is communicating and cooing and talking to me, even if I'm not talking to them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I will be there with my stethoscope looking over them and they're goo goo gaga ing, which is so fascinating to observe. So yeah, I agree. The kids will be okay. But what I, what I will want to know, and we'll, I think we'll only know this in a couple of years is was the, was something in the environment of the pandemic uh, more uh, in terms of triggering more cases of autism. Will our one in 50 go to one in 40 uh, after the pandemic? And I, I think it will. I feel like I diagnosed way more autism this last year than I already did, which is so much already. That That's my yeah. that's my observation. We'll see if I'm right or not. But. I'm going to um, check back in with you in five years. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's redo we'll our own personal study. <laughs> in Houston. Yeah. But I really love the screen time thing, you know, so can we, what do you tell us what your thoughts about that? Cause we can talk about that a lot too. Yeah. I love that you brought that up too, because I was like, I've been outside all day. It's been great, but <laughs> screen time is a huge thing. And I know so many parents are like getting ready to have their baby. And they're like, my baby is never going to look at a screen ever. But we as adults are on our screens all the time. So we are modeling the behavior of being on screen. So little kids are seeing their parents on their cell phones, on their apps, on their computers. And what do kids want to do? They want to be like mommy and daddy. They want to do what everybody else is doing. And so they will start grabbing for their phones. Little kids know how to swipe through. They know how to open phones. They will guess your passcode without you ever telling them. Um, and I think that it's super important that we identify that no screens is not realistic, especially not in recent times, but limited screen time is really important. And I think setting guidelines for your families and knowing what your screen time habits are going to look like with your child, um, whether it is, you know, setting aside time to FaceTime or Zoom with your family members that are not close by, um, really limiting any television, especially under the age of two. I know a lot of parents think that it's educational to pop their kid in front of the television and they will pick up on the songs and the colors and the lights and everything like that. They are going to get so much more out of a face-to-face -face conversation or 20 minutes of sitting with you on the floor playing an activity, doing a puzzle, playing with dolls, or even if they stand next to you in the kitchen while you're cooking dinner, they are going to get so much more out of that than sitting in front of a television. They're going to hear the language. They're going to see what's happening. They're going to observe what's happening. And I think that's the most essential part of language development. And they won't be picky eaters if they're watching you make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So many benefits. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. I think we get, we um, just did a whole talk about um, screen time. And so there's, you know, endless things we can say, but what I loved what you said is that it's not realistic to completely cut them out of our lives. We're in a digital age and we've got to cut ourselves some slack and, um, you know, it's just a part of our lives, but being mindful of it and, and limiting it uh, is going to be the most important. You know, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, another question that I had was in terms of your top tips for, so if you have a, if you have a patient who's let's say two year old and is not, um, you kind of mentioned this earlier, is maybe saying a few words and is not really putting words together, you know, two words together by two. Um, and they have some vocabulary and they're communicating otherwise, but they're just not talking, you know, like their brother or sister did. Um, any kind of uh, tips that you can offer parents? Um, definitely they need to see a speech pathologist and get all the evaluation done. But what can parents do to help kind of stimulate their speech? Sure. I definitely have some hacks, especially if you are at the stage where your child has some words, you know that they're capable of producing something. So you need to work to create the motivation. Um, and there are lots of different ways to do that. So top hacks, top tips to get from one word to two words or one word to three words really quickly. Um, and we have spoken about some of these. One really important one is using music. So incorporating music and creating your own songs that go along with daily routines. What happens is children will do new things when they feel comfortable. So creating routines, which are something that's really comfortable for children is going to help them to come out of their shell and to say new things. So I make songs about everything. They usually all go to the tune of Row Your Boat, but whatever it is, I am making a song about it and we are singing that song every time we wash our hands. It's wash, wash, wash your hands, make them nice and clean. Washy, 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 wash. Now your hands are clean. Every single time you're going to go from just saying wash to wash your hands um, and you can start leaving words out of those songs for your child to fill in. Then once they fill in the one word, you're leaving out two words and they're going to fill in two words. Another really great tip that I have for parents is put everything into a trap because what better motivation is there than wanting to get your favorite toy out of a box or out of a bag? If you can find, um, I use old um, bags that sheets came in because they go in those super fancy sacks and there's a little slot where you can put a picture of what the toy is that's inside. So you can really ambush your child and be like, Ooh, look what I have hiding inside. What do they want? They want to be able to open the bag. And so they're going to start to use language to get you to help them to open it. They won't be able to open that zipper by themselves at that point. Um, their fine motor skills are not well developed enough to really open a zipper. So they would come to you and ask for help and they could say help. They could say help out. They could say get toy out. And you have all different types of combinations. Um, the third tip that I like to give parents is to sabotage. So if you have um, a plate of food that you generally give to your child at mealtime and you have all of their favorite foods on the plate, well, now only put one piece of pasta on their plate and that's it. They're going to be really upset, but upset enough to tell you 
that they want more of that food. So that's really going to create the motivation that they need to start to use some of that vocabulary that they already have. You, of course, have to be super mindful of who your child is um, to know which of these approaches is going to work best. So if I have a child that gets super emotional, I am not going to sabotage their mealtime, but I might do a lot of singing with them because that's going to be something that's really comforting for them. If it's a child that's super sensitive to noises, I am not going to do the singing with them because that is going to really throw them off and it isn't going to be helpful. So that's where um, working with a speech language pathologist would help you to choose the approach that would be best for your child. How do you suggest if, um, those are awesome tips, by the way. So one of the things we frequently see is kids that are at that kind of age where they, uh, 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 so they point and they just grunt for what they want. And so they are trying to communicate, but the word's not coming out. How would a parent handle that? Because a lot of the times the parents will, will just do it for them because they know what they want. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the first step is parent training is you can't give into the temptation to help them, but there is kind of a magic number because you could be trying this for a really long time and your child is already conditioned to have you just do it for them if they grunt. Um, so three times a charm, but you're always going to level up one level above where your child is. So if they're saying, ah, and you want them to say up, then you might take the P away from it and say, pop, pop. and then eventually what you're going to get is up together by blending those two sounds together. Um, so if your child is only pointing, you're going to want them to make some sound with that. If they're already saying up, you might want them to add another word. And so you would try to get them to say go up or want up. Um, So you're always modeling for them and giving them an example that's one level above where they are already so that you're giving them some motivation to, and also giving them like a clear model of what you expect them to do. I love that advice because that's actually, I want um, any mom who's listening to this for their child who's at any age, I want them to hear that because that's something Anna and I actually say in clinic a lot because most parents want the best for their kids, right? So say you're pregnant and you're about to have your baby or you have a one, two, five, 10, 20 year old, doesn't matter. Um, One of the things we often suggest is look at what their next milestones are supposed to be in terms of everything, motor skills, speech skills, and work towards that. So you are constantly leveling up, as you said, but I always say like pushing them in the right direction, but, you know, kind of pulling them to where they're supposed to be. And I think that's really a good thing to keep in mind, but also don't get stressed out if they're not doing it because all kids develop at different rates. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I think a lot of times parents will come in very nervous because their older child or their middle child was at a different pace than this one, you know. So it's easy at this stage to compare between the children and to compare your child with another child. So I think this is where we really have to be pro mom and pro families and say, listen, you know, this, uh, every child is different. Some walk at nine months, others walk at 18 months, you know, eventually they walk across and, and they graduate and they go to school and, you know, nobody stresses about it later on. So a lot of these things will come. The, the key is to recognize to push them and then to get help when you don't see them doing it. But getting anxious and comparing, I feel like is only a you know recipe for disaster and more stress that they don't need, right? 
Yeah. And kids pick up on that energy. If you're feeling super worried and you're showing that around your kid, they know that. And it creates fear in the child, which creates the not best learning environment for that child. Um, So I think getting the support that you need and finding the people who are your network, who are going to listen to you, hear what you're going through, um, but not getting into a rabbit hole of comparison. Right. Exactly. Wow. We could, we could talk to you forever. <laughs> we, so um, much. <laughs> yes, there's so much to talk about. Um, but any kind of last minute, you gave some great hacks. And I think those hacks are a great starting place for families that are struggling with speech delay. Um, but any other final tips as a speech pathologist, anything um, that you wish parents and pediatricians <laughs> would know and do um, that you would recommend? So all parents and pediatricians should know that speech therapists are not scary. We're, <laughs> we're here to help you. So we're not going to judge you. We are here to provide support. We're here to listen to you and listen to your child and see where we can meet you, how we can level up and create a plan that's really going to work for you and for your family. I love it. So where can our listeners find you? So I am on Instagram at speech with JWO. I do a live workshop every six weeks or so. It's a first word foundation. So I help parents learn a lot of these hacks of how to get their children started early. Um, it's guide, it's geared towards families of six months to about three years. So we go through how to develop first words. We go on to how to start combining words together. And so I give a lot more concrete examples of different activities that you can do to build your child's language. That's great. No, it's one other thing you said that I really loved is that you said that a lot of the times, you know, what you're doing might look like play. And I think that that's very, very good for families and parents to know you not only are you not scary, but when you are engaging with the kids, um, you are assessing them in your professional way. And I I also want to emphasize that's the same way pediatricians work. So when we're talking, when we walk into a patient's room, whatever age the patient is, we observe them right away. And then we might interact with them for five or 10 or you know, seconds or two minutes. And in that time, not only are we visiting, but we're assessing and, uh, and it might not look like it cause we're good at what we do, but, <laughs> but that's the same with you. And I think that was a really important point too. So thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. And, um, I hope that we can continue this discussion again in the future, but I know that all types of parents with all ages of children will get a lot out of this discussion and your tips today. And I know that we've got more planned with you in the future. So we both look forward to it a lot. Yeah, this has been so great. I love that the internet has brought us together. It's really amazing to meet amazing professionals from all over the country to work together, to collaborate with the ultimate goal of just helping families. Yes, totally. Thank you. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. 
Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any fact.